This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. First, I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, Credit Intel. Knowing the financial health of retailers is crucial for the success of your retail-related business. That's what Credit Intel is for. Credit Intel analyzes the financial health of hundreds of publicly and privately held retailers in different sectors. With a subscription to Credit Intel, you have access to comprehensive analysis of retailers' financial condition and their expert analytics team. Visit creditintel.com for more information. Welcome everyone to Retail Retold. Today I have with us Jeff Gray. Jeff is the VP of Real Estate for Hibbit Sports. He has been with Hibbit for 29 years and in the real estate capacity for 20. Hibbit Sports is an athletic retailer that has 1,100 stores, is publicly traded, and excited to have you, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. How are things at Hibbit? What's going on at Hibbit these days? You know, things are things are good. Things are busy. Uh, we're still implementing um, a merger with a city gear that we purchased in late 2018. So that's taken a lot of our time. We're evolving our company um, to be more of a, like you said, an athletic retailer, really with a focus on footwear, trying to sell. We call it head to toe concepts. Um, so that's really been our focus right now as we become more athletic and product lines changing. We still sell equipment in stores, but it's becoming less of a percentage of what we do. Um, but it's it, it's keeping us busy. The city gear process is really keeping us busy. And what's the part that's keeping you most busy? Is it the integration within and the merger of two companies and kind of like getting rid of the duplication and the economies of scale? Is that is that what's the... The key yeah, to that company wide, that's the biggest thing. Just really systems is probably the thing that, that our company's having to spend the most time. We're, we're dealing with two totally different operating systems. We will, you know, bring all of their people here in internal into our office starting the first of, of 2020. So we're still running two offices right now. Uh, and then just for real estate for us, we're just trying to get caught up and Um, you know, incorporate all of their leases that we have, expiration dates, things like that, and then really just trying to grow the chain. Um, You know, they were opening five and six stores a year really because of of money. And, you know, that was one of the big things for us is that we've got the cash, so we'd like to grow them at a faster pace. So it's just getting everybody signed up so we can open additional stores, you know, going forward for them. How many, how many Hibbit and City Gear stores did you guys say you would open this uh, this year or next year or anything like that? Well, well, next year, you know, we're trying to open 20 City Gear stores. Uh, we'd like to open 15 Hibbit. So, you know, 30 to 30 to 35 between the two concepts. What was like the, the ca- how big of a chain is City Gear? Uh, they had 138 stores, I think, when we bought them. Uh, wow. So they're at 150 right now. So sizable chain. Yeah. What was the the catalyst for you guys to look at? You know, you guys have had pretty strong organic growth over the years by, you know, opening stores one at a time in brick and mortar locations. What was the catalyst for buying another chain? Well, you know, we, as we've moved to more 
of a footwear-based company. Um, you know, we were really just looking at people out there that, that did that. And, the, and they were the perfect size. Not, you know, you start getting in a bigger, com- you know, much bigger company than that. It's really hard to integrate it. But they were a good size, um, great volume stores. You know, they were just having problems growing really because of capital. So they, they needed somebody to throw capital at them. We were looking for somebody to kind of help us, you know, really learn about that footwear concept. And that's that's all they do. You know, they're, they're, they're footwear and apparel, but, you know, they're really focused on that fashion, urban customer, um, you know, more city specialty. And, um, you know, we had moved a lot of our stores to that as well. So it was just a great fit to add, you know, to add almost 150 stores just right off the top to what we had. When did you guys close on that transaction? Uh, October of 2018. Is it is it what you guys hoped it would be? Is it better to meet expectations? Yeah, no, it's 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 been really good. We're we're real pleased with it. Their sales have been good. We'll actually add them to our comp store base in the fourth quarter. So um, we're expecting some some good things. So there's some things that they lack that we really could help them with, and there were things that they did better than us that we're you know we can incorporate into our you know a thousand stores as well. That's the dream synergistic scenario. So that's that's really awesome. How are you guys finding, I guess, with both concepts, how are you guys finding, you know, e-commerce these days and the competition? We launched our own e-commerce about two and a half years ago. And, you know, it's quickly become about 10% of our business. So it, it is a big part of athletics, big part of sporting goods. People use e-commerce to buy a lot of the things we sell. But what we're learning is based off of, you know, launch product, this, you know, this Jordan's things that customers want tomorrow. They want, you know, they kind of enjoy waiting in line to get them. You got to do the uh, lottery. You know, you have to, we have an online website or our app that you can actually get on. You're able to to be part of the lottery because stores only get so many of these shoes. So Nike requires us to kind of do a lottery. It avoids the, you know, 300 people in line for 20 pair of shoes. Those customers are really more brick and mortar. So, um, and those are mostly cash customers as well. So we're really being able to, with our online, we can, you know, coordinate two customers and, and it's working real well. And we're trying to incorporate everything we do online. We try to do things that draw people back to the store. So, you know, our big things that we've done this year is, you know, is, is, is Bopus and Ropus, which is buy online, pick up in store, reserve online, pick up in store. And that's been a huge part of our business, people buying it online, but coming to the store to pick it up. Uh, majority of our returns go back to our stores, which is a good thing as well. So you get that customer back in the store. So hopefully um, long term, it becomes a big part of what we do and it helps helps our brick and mortar store. Are you finding, uh, like a lot of retailers I speak to, when you open a store in a market, your online sales in that market increase. When you close a store in a market, your online sales in that market decrease. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of decreases when we close stores. You know, our lar- it's funny for us, our largest areas of online sales are New York City and LA. And I know part of that is just pure population, but we have no stores in either one of those markets. So a lot of it is driven by the product. You know, we are getting top line, you know, launch product, top line, things that customers want. And it's just showing up on the Google searches. So uh, we do, it does increase when we open a store to market. There's no question about that, but we haven't really seen the decreases um, when we close stores. 
that's pretty good Google search optimization team you guys have if you have no stores in a market and you're getting customers in New York and LA. So that was was one of their big focuses when we did this because, you know, that's it's pure population. And if, you know, if you can drive to those areas, um, it really helps business. And we've been surprised by it as well. Do you think that'll ever mean you get into those markets? I know you guys aren't in those markets from a brick and mortar presence. You know, I mean, you know, we're in California, we're in the state of New York. Um, you know, you know, I think there's there's chances of us getting into getting close to those markets. I don't know that we're going to be in Manhattan anytime soon, but you know, some of the outside boroughs of, of New York that wouldn't surprise me in the long term. Not something we're necessarily looking at right now. We're still trying to focus on, you know markets that need us, uh, markets that really don't have a lot of competition. And that's hard to do in LA and um, New York City. Totally. One of the things you mentioned was uh, the cash customer. Do you do you still have a large consumer that's cash based? Oh, yeah, it's it, it's it's very large. Um, City gear is even larger than, than Hibbit. So we're shocked by how, how large it is. But yeah, we have a large cash based business. Interesting. Does a lot of the competition have cash customers like you? I think that's kind of standard in, um, you know, with some of the products we sell, particularly some of the markets we go to, you know, it's pretty big in, in athlete. I don't know the average, you know, across the, you know, the concept, but I, I assume it's pretty big everywhere. Interesting. Well, I appreciate the insight. That's good context for anybody who doesn't know Hibbit or City Gear, but I got their website up now, guys. And if you, you haven't gone, you should go check it out. They got some awesome products on there. So, Jeff, today we're going to talk about a, a store in Louisville, Mississippi. Why don't you tell us how uh, that, that store ended up uh, being a store? Yeah, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting story. Louisville, if you're not familiar with Mississippi, is, is a small town it's probably about an hour northeast of Jackson, Mississippi, kind of between Jackson and Columbus, Mississippi. So we opened the store in 2013. And at the time, and still still a little bit, you know, we really focused on small markets that really just had a need for a place to buy shoes, a place to buy sporting equipment, a place to buy clothing and and, and we're very successful in Mississippi. We have, oh, I'm trying to think. We have about 60 stores in the state of Mississippi, and that's at a, with a pretty small, you know, population base. So Mississippi is one of our best states. So we're, you know, we're looking for stores all over Mississippi as much as we could. I mean, there, we, we couldn't find markets that were really too small. We just, you do one, it would work. You go find the next one, it may even be a little small. It would typically work. And we kind of had, had, had opened a lot of stores in the general area of, of Louisville, we didn't have a store in that market. And we got a call one day from um, just from a local owner there that owned a, he owned a building. It was a, a closed grocery store that was right next door to the, the relatively new Walmart Supercenter. So obviously Walmart opened this local grocery store, just, you know, they couldn't make it. They went out of business. And this guy had just been driving around, you know, Mississippi and had seen our stores in other areas. So he called and said, hey, you know, I've got this, you know, grocery store that I'm thinking about cutting up. Um, you know, would Hibbit have interest in coming to this market? So we'd not spent a lot of time in Louisville up until then. So we, you know, we got in the car. It's only a couple hours from here in Birmingham. Drove over, looked at the market, you know, did a little bit of market research. 
and, and determine, hey, you know, this, this might be a market that could work. It was small. Um, there weren't a lot of other retailers there, but, you know, they had a Walmart. So we said, hey, yeah, you know, I, we think we can do this. So typically when we start doing these deals, you know, they'll take a month, two months to kind of work through the process of, you know, getting everything negotiated and then you, you kind of get to lease. Well, this guy was, he was excited that we were interested. He owned his own, you know, he owned the building. He owned his own construction company. Uh, and he said, hey, you know, if we can get this deal done, we can get you guys open quick. We worked through an LOI. It was relatively easy. So we're telling him, hey, we're going to send you the lease it's on our lease form. He said, yeah, please, you know, send the lease. So we sent it to him. And he, and he has it for about a week. And then he and and, the, and this isn't a guy, and sorry to interrupt, but this isn't a guy who's like a lot of your other landlords that owns multiple properties, has gone, done a million commercial leases. This isn't that guy, right? No, he, he owns, you know, he owns this building and he may own some other stuff, but it's all in Louisville. We've never dealt with him before. And, you know, obviously he had a little bit of experience because he had dealt with the grocery store. But it was really all on a local level. Got it. So, so we sent him to lease. He keeps it for about a week and I start, you know, I don't hear from him. So I start getting a little bit nervous. So I call him and he says, yeah, I got the lease. What are you doing tomorrow? I want to come over to Birmingham and talk to you about it. Now, so I'm, I'm like, Oh God, have we scared this guy off? Is he just going to kill the deal? Whatever. So I said, you know, by all means come over and, and we get very few landlords that, you know, that come to the office, particularly, on the first round of comments of the lease, but he came over, we met with him. We talked for a few minutes. We're talking more about his family and our family and, and things like that. And, and he finally says, Jeff, I just want to get to the cut to the chase on this. <laughs> like reputable people. I like you guys. I'm going to sign this lease. As long as you promise me, there's no, there's no gotchas in it. And I really didn't know what to say. Obviously, we feel like our lease is fair to us and, and, you know, and the landlord. But I told him, I said, hey, I promise you there's nothing in there that we're going to try to, you know, try to get you with. You know, we feel comfortable with it. And uh, he said, all right. And he sat down, he got a pen, and he signed that lease right there. Oh, um, my God. He opened six months later and still open to this day in, in Louisville. And I don't know that we've ever had a issue at all at this point so um you know i was terrified that we'd get to that first kick out date and we wouldn't make the number i'd have to call that guy and say we were going to kick out or need a rent reduction or something but luckily for us uh it was, it's been a pretty successful store and um we hadn't had to do that but um the only time i've had that happen and so when when you say kick out you mean for those who don't know in in your lease after a certain time period if you don't reach the sales volume that you might have projected you have the right to terminate the lease, right? Yes, yeah. That is fascinating because all we ever talk about in the industry today is with the advent of technology, how long deals take, right? We used to mail leases back and forth for comments in the actual mail, and it was faster than some deals take today. They take so long. Uh, the commercial leases. Some of them are over 100 pages today. And so you and I go through a lease. You have your attorneys and paralegals, and I have my attorneys and paralegals, and we're clobbering through them. Hopefully now we have a conform lease, so we don't, uh, we've gone through a lot of the heartache and pain. But, uh, you know, for those who don't know, they're, you know, getting one done typically involves a lot of people. And so having a guy just show up and sign the lease is definitely fascinating, especially, you know, that's the stories you hear about in the 1960s and 70s. But not in 2013, you know, that good old boy kind of uh, on a handshake uh, agreement. I wonder, 
I wonder if he even read that lease, Jeff. No, I don't, I don't think I don't think he read it. I th- I think he wanted to come to the office that day so he could look me in the eye because you know he could have called me and said, "Hey, I'm gonna sign this lease. There's no issues." I think he wanted to look me in the eye and have me, you know, tell him that, you know, that we were it was a good lease, you know. So yeah, I don't. I don't I'm pretty sure he didn't read the lease. Like I said, we've had no issues, you know, either side, and, and, and I'm thankful for that. And it does take you back to a whole different time, you know, handshakes. And, you know, you would start working spaces on a handshake agreement or whatever. And today, you're, you know, you're terrified of everything. And you won't, if it ain't written down in paper, you're not going to, you know, in today's world. Was he required to build out your space? Yeah, yeah. He, he, had, a, he had a construction company, and, yeah, he built out the space. So you could have put in the lease that he was having to build the Taj Mahal and he wouldn't. Yeah, have... <laughs> yeah, we, we could have had anything in that lease. Um, I mean, I mean, luckily, you know, we, we feel like we're very reputable. You know, we put in the lease what was in the LOI, which he had read. You know, he had we have a pretty detailed letter of intent and, and we had went through that with him. So, you know, he understood what was supposed to be in the work exhibit. He understood what was supposed to be rent and things like that um but you know a lot of just the lease language you know the default language the quiet enjoyment language things like that uh, he trusted us on that good for him fascinating how fast did you guys sign it uh we i, I took it to the to, to my boss as soon as he left and we got it signed that afternoon <laughs> were they were they flabbergasted they, they asked me was not sure it just, <laughs> really just happened uh, <laughs> So, yeah, you know, we have leases now that take six, eight months to get signed. That one took a week, and that was just until he could get over there. That is incredible. You know what, though? It, that, that gotcha point w- is interesting because it's powerful when someone looks you in the eye and just puts all their trust in you and asks you to give them their word, your word. That is sometimes powerful than some, more powerful than some of the things in negotiation. And for him to say... I have one question. There's no gotchas in this lease, right? And really put you on the spot. And like you said, you had to really think through it because you're go the way you're going as being a businessman for so long is like, well, we're a reputable company. I think it's a fair lease, but you know, could one perceive this as a gotcha? It's not meant to be a gotcha, but you might perceive it. And that's probably what's going through your head is he's asking you that question. Oh, de- definitely. Definitely. I'm trying to think, what do I need to tell him right now that could come up in the future. But you know, like I said, we've had no issues. So luckily, you know, knock on wood, we're there 10 more years and um, we don't have any issues. Well, that's fantastic, Jeff. It was a great story. I really appreciate uh, the color on what's going on with Hibbit and what's going on with City Gear. You know, that in itself is the story of a deal, that deal you made with those guys. Going back to that for a second, how involved in your role did you get in the merger and acquisition? Did they have you on some project or special task force? Yeah, we did, we, we did some research on just store locations and, and, and things like that and just really trying to figure out, you know, how much overlap there was and uh, and things like that, you know, you know, they had to keep really, really quiet, very limited on, on what we got and when we got it. And, you know, we didn't, I, from a real estate aspect, I didn't really know how serious we were as I was doing this research. I, I knew that something possibly was happening, but most of ours was just really just, you know, where do we overlap stores? How well do we do in the same markets and things like that. And, and so, but eventually you had to tell the street what was going on, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
how big of a transaction, I don't know if it's public, how big of a transaction was that in dollar dollar figures? It was pretty big. I mean, and I don't know, I don't have all the specific numbers in, in front of me, but it was a very unique way the transaction worked. They wanted one price for the, for the you know, they were private. They wanted one price for the, for the sale. We obviously wanted to pay them less. And we ended up with a, with a process of we, we paid them an amount and then we basically did a two-year, you know, if they hit certain certain numbers and certain parameters, they'll get some additional money. And it also, um, you know, it incentivized their management team to stay on board. So their, you know, the, their owner at that point, Mike Longo, is still involved through this two-year period. Uh, and it's really pushed those guys to do the best thing and, you know, continue to, you know, to improve the company and, and grow it. Fantastic. Well, listen, Jeff, I really appreciate the time here. I have three questions for you. We call this retail wisdom. It's our, uh, our last three questions. First one, best piece of commercial real estate advice for the listeners out there. You know, and I, I say this to all of my guys when I hire them and anybody else is, it's just really be prepared, you know, have all the information in front of you before you, you reach out to a landlord or a landlord reach out to a tenant. You know, nothing's worse than somebody calling you about a site and, you know, you close in that center two years before or you have a store across the street or you ask them, is there competition in the market and they don't know it. So I just tell my guys, just be prepared. It makes the whole conversation a whole lot easier if you have as much of the information as possible when you make that first phone call. It makes everybody more comfortable, um, more believable, and you kind of get down to the you know, I can give you a real quick answer if you call me about a site. If you can answer three questions for me, typically, I can typically tell you if we have interest or not and save everybody a lot of time. What are those three questions? Where is the competition? You know, I, I want to know just because we're starting to deal with different store formats is really just the, the basic demographics, you know, the income, race, population, um, and then, you know, for me, we're in a lot of centers with people with exclusives. Is I always say, hey, does anybody have an exclusive in this shopping center? You don't know how many times we get well in the process. And they say, oh, I forgot. But, you know, one of the other shoe guys has an exclusive. You guys can't come in and we've wasted time. Understood. I've, I know how that goes. I know how that goes all too well. Second question. Extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead? <laughs> Well, there's a lot of them. Um, you know, the first one that comes off of my mind is, is service merchandise. As a kid, we would, I, I came from a very small town in Alabama, Roanoke, R-O-A-N-O-K-E, Alabama, almost in Georgia. We would have to drive, you know, an hour to get to a service merchandise. But just going into those stores and watching that product come down that conveyor belt as a kid, that was the coolest thing ever. Um, they should bring the conveyor belt back to a lot of places, but I really miss going to service merchandise. That's awesome. I think a lot of people do actually. I think that's, you know, for a generation, that was a fantastic store. So great. Yeah. Last question. Given this show's about retail, going to throw you for a loop here, Jeff. We like to ask our guests to guess the retail price on a certain, uh, from a certain retailer of a certain product. So Amazon.com is selling from crook to cook, Snoop Dogg's cookbook, celebrity cookbook with his soul food recipes. 
What is the retail price on Amazon? Oh, I had a Snoop Dogg had a cookbook. <laughs> oh, gosh. A hard sell. It, it can't be that thick. Um, you know, $20, $19.99. You went over $14.97 for the oh, Snoop Dogg from Cook to Cook cookbook. That's so. a deal. That's a deal. I can't imagine the recipes in here. They must be fascinating. So anyway, Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Really appreciate you coming on. Have a great holiday and enjoy with your family. And I really hope Pivot uh, kicks butt this uh, Christmas season. All right. Thanks, Chris. I really enjoyed it, man. Happy holidays to you, you guys as well. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us. This podcast highlights the stories behind deals from all perspectives, so it doesn't matter if you're a retailer, broker, attorney, or an architect. Contact Diane Lee at D-L-E-E at D-L-C-M-G-M-T.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.